0: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? God our Father, we are a resurrection people. May your life be in us today. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Rutten, just in case you don't know me. Uh, I hope you're sitting comfortably. You're certainly very welcome. And I'm an occasional preacher here at St. Saviour's. I hope you had a good Easter weekend. The highlight, of course, of the Christian calendar, Easter. We are, after all, a resurrection people. Unlike all other world religions, resurrection is what we do, and it's what we are. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Ah, but you say, sometimes down here on earth it's not quite so easy, is it? If we're honest, life doesn't always feel so very triumphant. Personally, I was glad to see the back of February and March. A number of things went wrong for me, both in terms of personal life and uh, certainly work life as well, and the resurrection of spring seemed uh, a long way off. We always seem to be uh, walking the slightly demented rescue dog in the cold grey light and mud of the Onslow Village netherworld. In the words of a work colleague's key ring, it's all gone belly up. Oh, I had to sanitize the language a little bit. Well, I'm sure we've all been through times like that. And so it was that I found myself early one morning in the gym uh, trying to uh, do one of my exercises, and it was a press-up on one of these. In best Ezekiel tradition, I brought a visual aid. Does anyone know what that is? Anyone at all? It's a medicine ball. That's right. Five-kilo medicine ball. The real thing seven kilos. I can't even lift that. And so there I was, early one morning, trying to do my press-ups on the medicine ball, just in case uh, you 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 are unaware. A medicine ball is an unusual ball. Um, The word "ball" comes from a good New Testament Greek word, "ballo," which means "ballo" means to throw. Yes, you're absolutely right. To throw. Well, you can't throw this. I think I'd kill somebody on the front row if I tried to throw this. You can't do anything with this. You can't kick it. You can't hit it with a bat. You can't catch it, you certainly can't bowl with it. A medicine ball is about the deadest ball in the world. They just don't bounce. Well, anyway, there I was, trying to do the press-ups, dutifully, as I had been taught and told, and I have to say, it wasn't a pretty sight, because when you put both hands on the ball and try and do a press-up, your chest constricts, and you fall off. And as I placed my hands on the ball for the umpteenth time, I heard God say, Can these bones live? (laughs) Just as surely as I'm standing here. Which brings us back to the passage. Now, a bit of background the story so far. The date is around 587 B.C., Jerusalem, the southern Jewish kingdom, has fallen to the Babylonians. A puppet king is installed, Zedekiah, and Ezekiel, uh, a young man, he's only 30 years old, a priest, uh, is carried off into exile with a group of Israelites who are formed into a slave gang. There they are, making bricks out of clay by the banks of a river long since dried up and forgotten. There is, sadly for them, No hope of redemption, or freedom, or deliverance. There's no hope of anything. They're going to die there, I'm afraid, in exile, in their slave camp. They are the walking dead. As dead as my medicine ball. As dead as the bones in the valley. It's all gone belly up. Into the scene comes Ezekiel, a young man with a tough message from God. Redemption And restoration will come, but not for his slave gang. God's people will return. They will rebuild the temple. But not this lot. They're not going to make it. They're going to die there. The other priests in the party, they're offering a false message of hope and deliverance. But Ezekiel knows it's false optimism. And just to make the job a tiny bit more challenging, God strikes this young, sensitive, visionary prophet dumb. So he's going to have to deliver his sermons in silence. Good idea, you might think. (laughs) Through mime, through visual aid, and through visions such as this, as in our passage. That is, if anyone is listening or watching to this young uh, eccentric. It's all gone belly up. And by now, you might well be asking, where's all this going? We've just had Easter, the climax of the Christian calendar, full of miracle and new resurrection life, bursting forth from the grave. Why are you dragging us backwards into the Old Testament and downwards into that terrible graveyard, that valley of unburied skeletons? Regulars here might even be wondering why we can't have the Emmaus Road. We always have the Emmaus Road after Easter, or Doubting Thomas, or Jesus by the seashore. What's going on? Why this passage? It's a good question. Well, this passage, because in best Ezekiel tradition, God is speaking in pictures and speaking a powerful message to us all. It has to get bad before it gets good. That's how life works sometimes, seems to me. We have to face the bad first, before resurrection comes death. Those who sow first in tears, only they sometimes can reap with shouts of joy. Only when we reach rock bottom, only perhaps when we have nowhere to go, only then can we turn most completely to God whose strength is made perfect in our weakness. Before resurrection comes death, both physical and spiritual death. And it is death, the last enemy, who we need to look squarely in the face this morning before deliverance can come. And so, into this valley, we see the full horror of death. A mighty army defeated, Killed, left to fall where they lie, the bodies rotted away, the bones bleached by the sun. The army that was on our side has just been wiped out. The bad guys have won, and the good guys have lost. Their memory is forgotten. No burial, no flowers, no mourners, no remembrance, no deliverance. Evil reigns unchecked with no one to stop it. We make our bricks in our slave gang in the merciless heat of the Iraqi sun. And we keep ourselves busy. Or we turn on the news or the internet and see the same horrors in the same region to this very day. And it feels sometimes, doesn't it, like we've lost. Lost the plot, lost the fight. It's all gone, belly up. Two men are sitting in a bar. One says to the other, you know, my wife's an angel. And the other one says, you're lucky, mine's still alive. (laughs) Which brings us on to worldviews of uh, death. Let's look at that. In Ezekiel's world, that's the world of Greek philosophy, the Old Testament. There is one clear rule about death uh, in Greek philosophy. And that is, you don't come back. Not ever, not ever, not in this life, not in this body. You live instead in a dispiriting, shadow world once you're gone. A sunless afterlife of spirits and shades and ghosts. Just one rule, no way back. Old Testament Hebrew belief, perhaps not unsurprisingly, picks up on all this. At least at first sight. God is a God of this life to the Old Testament Hebrews. To live this life is to be with God. But to die is to somehow lose that connection and enter a a shadowy world of Sheol. And once again, there's no way back. That's the cardinal rule. The damage, it seems to me, was done way back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, when death entered the world. Dust you are. And to dust you will return. Genesis 3. And once there, there seems to be no way back. In death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? Psalm 6. The dead do not praise Yahweh, neither do any that go down into the silence. Psalm 115. My soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near. Sheol, I am like those that have no help, like those forsaken amongst the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Psalm 88. And so it goes on. Isaiah, Samuel, Job, Ecclesiastes, the message comes again and again. Hope and relationship with God in this life? Absolutely yes, but not after death. Sheol is not a fun place to be. No one seems very happy there, or joyful, or terribly alive. No, the best that can be hoped for is a good life followed by an untroubled rest. And yet, and yet, the dry bones start to come to life by the creation power of God and by the resurrection power of Jesus, just as surely as spring follows winter. At first, there are only little glimpses and they are easy to miss, particularly in the Old Testament. Isaiah 26 says this, we have not brought salvation to the earth and the people of the world have not come to life. But... Your dead will live, O Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Another little glimpse in Daniel 12. It's almost a throwaway line. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame, and everlasting contempt. And as we've been already reminded this morning, those very famous words from Job 19, from the very lowest point of human existence, turned totally out of the context of the narrative, we read these famous Words. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I myself shall see him with my own eyes and not another. It's almost as if against centuries of human culture and belief, and a rather depressed pragmatism. Something new is breaking in, something unexpected, something so vital it will reshape our understanding of both the purpose of this life and the life to come. Nothing illustrates this Old Testament glimpse of a new spiritual reality better than our passage today. Many of the incidental touches seem important. To a Jew, especially a priest, dead bodies and graveyards are the height of uncleanliness, and yet God deliberately walks Ezekiel to and fro amongst them. There is no avoiding the horror of the uncleanliness. This is a God who asks us to get our hands dirty first, then the challenge of faith, the challenge of worldview. Can these bones live? A four-beat, almost musical motif that underlies the explosion of the creation of life force, that resurrection life force that is shortly to come. The same Spirit of God that breathed across the face of the waters in Genesis is now breathing across the valley here, With the same result, death starts to operate in reverse, and resurrection life bursts forth anew. And so they stood on their feet, a mighty army. Of course, this is only an Old Testament glimpse of resurrection life to come. God makes clear later in the passage that this is a metaphor, this valley, a metaphor for the restoration of Israel, the building of the second temple, and all that happened long before the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, and yet, the New Testament resonances are so powerful that if we leave it there, if we say that's all there is to it, To the valley of dry bones. If that's all it means, then we miss so much. In the valley, we see God the Father. We see God the Holy Spirit very clearly. But if we look with eyes of faith, we will see someone else there, someone who holds all things together. Let me try and synthesize John chapter 1 into the passage of the valley. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus makes all things. And compare that to this. This is what the sovereign Lord says, I will make breath into you, and you will come to life. Jesus is at work in the valley of death, bringing life. You can't keep him out of it. There is too strong a creative force at work. John chapter 1 again, in him was life. That's an odd thing to say. In everyone who's alive, there is life after all. So in this context, the writer must mean something different, something more superlative. In the context of creation, John is saying that this life of Jesus is the life of life, which brings life out of death. John speaks of Jesus as the living word, the force behind creation. And as we see later in the gospel, the force behind re-creation, or as we know it, resurrection. Come, breath, spirit, same word, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And they came to life and stood on their feet, a mighty army, the army of God. Back to John chapter 1. To those who believe in his name, they became children of God. Children not born of natural descent, but born of God. And what happened to the bones? They became born again. Born of God. They were bodily resurrected by the power of Jesus, who himself rose from the dead. The references are too powerful and too many to be ignored. John chapter 1 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And does not the spirit of Jesus become flesh in our passage? I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet, a mighty army. This is even more clearly explained if we read on in John's Gospel. Chapter 5 says this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Then Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. For I tell you, a time is coming, and now is, and could you just remember that phrase for a minute, a time is coming and now is, I'll come back to that, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And so now it comes closer to home, for we are the bones, dead in our sins in that terrible valley, and yet, and yet, gloriously come to life in Jesus, the incarnation of the living God. We are the vast army, the army of God, redeemed, forgiven, bought with a price, a price paid by Jesus on that terrible cross, purified, sanctified, justified, right with God. It is we who are a resurrection people, brought back from dead to newness of life by Jesus himself. That is the now of the message. But there's also a not yet, John chapter 5 again, I tell you, a time is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. The message is not just new life in Christ now. It is equally about an eternal future, a second coming when Jesus will return and raise the dead either to life or condemnation. But for us, for all of us who believe on his name, who repent of our sins, who trust in his righteousness, for us, we will be raised to a new body, to life eternal. Nobody looks very excited. (laughs) But it excites me, and I hope it excites you too. My time is nearly gone. Having made the case for resurrection... Unfortunately, there's almost no time to explore its extraordinary implications, both for this life and the next. But let me just say this. First, the now of resurrection means a life lived in Christ that is truly alive. And we need to explore all that might mean. Second, the future promise of resurrection gives meaning to the pains and the struggles and the bereavements of this present life. For we will rise again. Our loved ones will rise again. We will be gloriously changed. We have present troubles, yes, but we believe in a future Glory. Finally, we can catch a glimpse of that in Revelation 7. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered with Ezekiel-like evasiveness, Sir, you know. And then he said, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We are a resurrection people. Hallelujah.